Welcome to uh, Going Deeper 2017. Going Deeper is the highlight of my year, or one of the highlights, I should say, uh, of my year. One of uh, the favorite parts of my role, really. Uh, and it's the culmination of a year for me. So basically each year we um, put Going Deeper in the diary about this time. So we have put one in the diary for next year. And I begin to think, what would I like to learn more about? And then I basically spend a year as that as one of my study topics throughout the year and then do the course at the end of the year. So I get huge benefit from it and hopefully also you get blessed by it as well. So this is literally being you know, a year in the planning for me. So it's just very exciting to get to the point where I get to share uh, some of this with you really. And this year I chose Isaiah. Uh, last year we looked at the four gospels. We particularly asked the question, why are there four gospels, not just one? Um, and then we came to the end of that. I was already thinking I'd like to do Isaiah. And we actually did some feedback forms and a number of people on that said they were interested in exploring Isaiah this year. So I went for that. And to be honest, picked Isaiah because I thought, I, to be frank, even having done two theology degrees, don't really know much about Isaiah, didn't really know how to read the prophets. And I think that might be the experience of a lot of Christians. We know they're important. We know the New Testament talks about them a lot. We know they're quite a big chunk, actually, of the Old Testament. But they're quite hard to read, quite hard to understand, to apply. And so I thought, I knew it was for me, it was going to be beneficial, so I think as well for all of us it will. Just um, kind of really quick thing on practicalities. The first sheet in your uh, notes gives you the dates we're meeting. It's five sessions, but there are two breaks because of central prayer meetings, so don't just count five weeks in your calendar. Please do look at the dates in there. And you'll see that because of room availability, we're here for three of them and we're in the Pelham in Bexhill for two of them. And the address is there, it's very easy to get to on the Link Road. So here next time, then at the Pelham, then back here, then at the Pelham. Um, if that's a problem, by the way, transport, let me know, we can sort lifts of people coming across from Hastings. I'll give you notes each time you come along, because you'll see already this week, there's loads in there, we might well not talk through it all, but it gives you a chance, if you want to, to read it at home. Um, I'm trying to put more activities in this year as well, so there'll be lots of activities we don't do, but it might be you at home want to look at them yourself later. And so if you want to, you can bring your folder back, put them in there each week as well. And I want these evenings to be interactive. So a lot of it, or some of it will be me teaching, some of it will be activities you kind of do in groups, some of it will do q and A. I I usually forget to ask them any questions, so do butt in if you've got a question and I'm forgetting to ask, uh, because this is meant to be you know, a discussion, uh, kind of learning together, exploring. And really what we're doing across these five weeks is it's helpful to think of it as like we're going on a journey. We're going on a journey exploring the book of Isaiah. What we do in this first session is this is a bit like our kind of team briefing before we set off. Actually, there are some things we need to know before we travel into this book that are going to help us when we're there, just as if you were going on a mission trip to a very different country. You have the briefing to get to know a bit first. Then the subsequent three sessions will walk through three major, or walk through Isaiah, divided into three kind of major sections. And we'll stop off at key landmarks. And hopefully through doing that, we'll get a flavor for the whole, even though obviously in five sessions, we're just really touching the surface. And the last week will be kind of a debrief or almost like a reunion as if we were meeting many years later, because we're gonna look back on Isaiah from the perspective of the New Testament, asking how does the New Testament make use of the book of Isaiah? And from the perspective of us today, kind of what does Isaiah say to us as 21st century Christians? So today though, as I say, is about introducing. Introducing, gonna introduce the prophets as a section of the Old Testament and the prophet Isaiah himself. 
And I do uh, wonder and reckon probably if the prophetic books are one of the most neglected parts of uh, the Bible God's given to us. Probably because we find them quite hard to understand. They're written to very specific historical situations, situations we're no longer in. They're written in a different part of the Bible story, a different covenant, different age. Just even the literary format, there's no kind of comparative English literature that kind of fits with what the prophets are doing. So when we come to the Bible, it's probably the only time in our lives we come across this type of writing, which is hard. And they're full of poetry, they're often not very systematic in their progression. All these things make them quite difficult for us. But actually, there's so much gold to be mined in them. So much wonderful revelation of who God is, especially. How he works in history. Uh, how, uh, kind of what, the, what the gospel means, God's uh, faithfulness to his promises. And just the fact that the New Testament authors use the prophets so much, often particularly to think about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. They're linking it and viewing it through the lens of the prophets. Tells us it's really important stuff. These books are worth wrestling with. And so we need to first think about the prophets in general. Think about who are the prophets, what are the, who are the people, what are these books we've got in our Bibles. And actually there's an awful lot we can learn about Old Testament prophecy from the Old Testament itself. So I'm going to make you do some work right at the start now. And in your groups, so we're going to do about five minutes in this, you'll see there's uh, four passages written down there. Pick one at random, don't all start at the beginning because you won't have time probably to do them all. And just have a look in your groups, discuss what does this tell you about kind of the nature of Old Testament prophecy, kind of what it is, what does it tell you about prophets, how they work, and then I'm going to share some insights as we go along. About five minutes to do that. So hopefully you managed to isolate some facts about Old Testament prophecy, Old Testament prophets by looking at those passages. And I'm going to talk through that now and probably we'll pause at one or two moments and ask you what you found when we got to kind of the section that's relevant that you were looking at. So when we talk about Old Testament prophets, we actually think of two different groups because there are what we call the speaking prophets and the writing prophets. Because it's clear from the history of Israel in the Old Testament that prophets were active in Israel throughout its period, particularly after they came out of uh, Egypt in the Exodus, right through to the end of the Old Testament period. And so there are many prophets we don't know really anything about. We don't know much of what they said, other than that they existed. But then also there's the prophets who wrote the books or whose words are recorded in books that we have in the Old Testament. And so today we're particularly thinking about what we call the writing prophets. So people like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, Obadiah, all these kind of different people. And although um, prophets are prophesying right through Israelite history, it wasn't until the 8th century which is kind of coming near to the time when everything goes really wrong and the exile comes a couple of hundred years later that the writing prophets emerge. But as early as um, Abraham, the book of Genesis, he's called a prophet. Moses was called a prophet. So they kind of span right through the whole history of the Old Testament. And it seems that sometimes prophets worked in groups. If you read through 1 and 2 Samuel particularly, you'll find times when there's talk of bands of prophets, groups of prophets who work together. And sometimes they seem to be attached to the royal courts, to where the, the king, the monarch was. And so you get, for example, in 2 Samuel 24, reference to Gad, a prophet, and he was called David's seer, David's prophet. He was clearly kind of a, a guy who lived in the palace, worked closely with the king. So what about what is prophecy? Often people think that prophecy is about foretelling the future. And when we think about Old Testament prophecy, often our default is to think it's about foretelling the coming of Jesus, what Jesus does, and foretelling kind of what happens at uh, the end of time. 
But actually, that is only a tiny, tiny, tiny part of the role. You'll see some stats there. Less than 2% of Old Testament prophecy, one book reckons, actually is uh, as messianic, it's about Jesus, and less than 5% is about the New Covenant age, so post-Jesus, which means the vast majority of it actually isn't looking that far down the timeline. The best way to understand the prophets and what they were doing is that they were God's mouthpieces. They were the ones who would hear God's message and then they would communicate it. Another way I sometimes talk about it, they're God's megaphone. They're the people who amplify God's message so that his people would hear it. And Exodus 7 gives us a wonderful illustration of that. Did anyone look at that passage in their groups just now? I know you guys did. What did you um, find in Exodus 7 that explains this a bit? Well, first of all, that God communicates. Excellent, people, yep. And uh, he uses people to do that. Good. And how did the Moses Aaron thing uh, illustrate anything about prophecy for us? Excellent. And then, I hope you're in the right verse, it then calls Aaron Moses as prophet, doesn't it? Yeah. The idea is that a prophet is a mouthpiece. So Moses is called by God to go to Pharaoh to bring this message and to let my people go. But Moses is saying, God, I can't do that. He probably has some sort of speech impediment which then he wasn't confident to do it. And God says, okay, well, Aaron can be, he says, your prophet. He says, you're going to speak to Aaron, your brother, and Aaron is going to speak the words to um, Pharaoh. And so we see this pattern of Moses to Aaron to Pharaoh, which is an illustration for us of God speaking to a prophet who then speaks to God's people. And then we also see it in what we call the messenger formula, which is that kind of thing of thus says the Lord or hear the word of the Lord, those kind of things that often introduce prophecies. And 2 Kings 18 is very helpful for it. Anyone look at that passage? No, look at that one. No, oh, sorry. 2 Kings 19, you're right. There's a typo there. Anyone look at 2 Kings 19? That Hezekiah. That's fine. So what happens in uh, 2, uh, 2 Kings 19 is that Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, wants to come and speak to Hezekiah, the king of Israel. And so he sends a messenger to bring his words. And when the messenger arrives, he says, thus says the king of Assyria. And then Hezekiah sends a message to Isaiah because he wants to know what God thinks about this. And the messenger from Hezekiah says, thus says Hezekiah. And then we see um, Isaiah bringing a message from God, and he says, thus says the Lord. You see, when they sent messages between monarchs in the ancient world, they would send a little man to run along uh, to bring the message, and he would say, this is what my king says. This is what this person says. And the prophets use exactly the same uh, kind of introductory phrase. They're acting just like these messengers, which is more evidence for us that what they're doing is they're acting as God's messengers. And this is really key to understanding the prophets because when we're reading them, we're not only looking for things about Jesus and our age and the age to come, we're looking to see, well, what was God saying through these messengers at that time and why was he saying it? Which leads us on to why. What is the purpose of Old Testament prophecy? What were these guys trying to do? The prophets, their role was to call people to live by the covenant that God had put them under. So you know the story when they come out of uh, Egypt and the Exodus, they make this covenant, this agreement with God, where they say they're going to follow God's law, and God says if they do, they get blessings, and God says if they don't, they're going to get curses. 
And so the prophets aren't actually bringing new messages normally. They are covenant enforcers. They're saying, look, don't forget, this is the agreement we've made with God. And actually, if we don't do this, this is going to happen. This is God's warning to us. But actually, if we do do this, we're going to get this. We're going to get the blessing. And so the prophets are challenging people about their failure, usually, to match up to what God has said. But they also do bring God's gracious promises of what he's going to do, even irrespective of what people do. This means that often prophecy is actually conditional. It's said to uh, evoke a response. And uh, as we'll see, uh, the way Isaiah works, particularly in the later chapters, there may be less conditional prophecy in Isaiah than in other books. But many of these messages actually aren't saying these are hard and fast things that are going to happen, there's nothing you can do about it. The idea is the the Israelites are meant to hear it, realise they're doing the wrong thing and therefore God's going to judge them and to change their behaviour. It's actually a call to repentance. And that's what we see in Jeremiah um, 18. Anyone look at that, about the potter in your groups? What did you find? Did you find anything useful about the nature of prophecy in Jeremiah 18? Yeah. Both groups. Anyone? Go for it, Robin. Yes, are you, on 20, are you on chapter 26, Robin? Um, are you on Jeremiah 26, you're talking about? Uh, yeah, cool, we're just on 18 at the moment, that's the next point, so you're spot on. Jeremiah 18, when he goes to the potter, what does he say when he's interacting with the potter? He uses, he uses the Fantastic, yeah, God kind of says basically go and see this potter and see how when he's making the pot and it kind of goes wrong and the clay isn't doing what he wants it to do. Actually, he's the potter, so he has every right to basically scrunch it up, to start again, to do a new thing. There's two messages coming through. There's the sense that the potter responds to what the clay's doing. So when it's kind of a bit stiff and it's not doing what he wants it to do, he will restart, he'll do something else. There's kind of a sense of unilateral control, but there's also therefore the sense of he's responding to what the clay's doing. So the potter thing isn't quite what Paul the Apostle does in Romans 9, where his idea is a potter can do what he likes to the pot. His idea is that he has full control, but also he responds to what's going on. And then God applies this to prophecy. He says, if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent, I'll turn around from the disaster that I tended to do it. God's saying that actually these messages are meant to change you. So even if I say I'm going to destroy you, if that makes you change your behaviour so you live the right way, I'm then not going to destroy you. He's showing us that some prophecy is conditional. And then we get to Jeremiah 26, which Robin was just talking about there, and the people are really not liking, basically, what Jeremiah is saying. Some of the people want to have him executed because he's saying the city of Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. But then someone pipes up and says, well, hang on a minute. There was a guy a few hundred years ago, a hundred or so years ago, called Micah, and he said the same thing. And he says, actually, in that occasion, King Hezekiah did listen to him and responded, we changed our behaviour, and the city was saved. And so he's saying, let's not kill Jeremiah, let's listen to him and actually respond to the message that he's saying. What's really important there is that is a prophecy that's in our Old Testament, which didn't come into being. 
Okay, this shows us that some Old Testament prophecy is conditional. It actually did its job. It made the people realize, man, if we don't change, God's going to destroy us and our city. Therefore, we're going to change. Does this mean that God changes his mind? Certainly not. It's not about God changing his mind. It's about God changing his treatment of people because they've changed their behavior. God's response to how people act is always just and fair, always acts in line with his character, always acts in line with what he says. But if they've changed what they're doing, it's perfectly fair that God's going to change his response to what they're doing. Does it mean that some of the prophecies are wrong? Because actually they don't happen. Does God basically lie through the prophets by saying that's going to happen, but then it doesn't? Again, no, the prophecies are still true, because if the people don't change their actions, those things were going to take place. They work like warning speech. Okay, if you were about to touch a very hot oven and I shouted at you, stop, well, no, sorry, I shouted at you, you'll burn yourself, you would hopefully then not touch the oven and would not burn yourself. You would not then accuse me of lying because you didn't burn yourself. The statement did something in you to make you realise you needed to change your action so that that didn't happen. That's how warning speech works. And much of Old Testament prophecy is warning speech. It's shouting you'll burn yourself so that hopefully the person stops in time so that it doesn't actually happen. Having said all of that, as I said, some Old Testament prophecy is unconditional. There are times when God is saying, I promise that this is going to happen regardless of what you do. And especially when God talks about the future, about the salvation that he's going to work, the solution to problems he's going to bring, often he's talking unconditionally. And when there are reasons given for these things, the promises he makes, he doesn't base it on anything the people do, he bases it on who he is. What, who he is. And as I've said, as we go through Isaiah, particularly in the second, third sections, we'll see a lot more of it is unconditional probably than in some of the other prophets we might look at. Yeah, yeah go for it. Just going back to the, the potlucks. Mm. Um, yeah, like people just taste, isn't it? And God, God can only work with what he's got in front of him, sort of thing. So, the, where is the clay was marred? Mm. Um, it wasn't the yeah that's true definitely that's an idea here isn't it that there's something this clay you know for whatever reason isn't molding rightly and therefore god responds obviously the whole topic of god's sovereignty so that means god's control and god's actually in the world is hugely complex and the bible states next to each other but god responds to what we do and that there's some level of therefore free choice and we have real influence it also says that god controls even our hearts even our thoughts and basically the bible says we have to hold together the fact that we have freedom and god is utterly sovereign and we have to go that doesn't make sense but then we go well, hang on a minute that's god not us so we shouldn't be able to understand the creator created can't understand the creator so you're right that's the important passage in that whole complex thing of does god respond to what we do or is it god in control and there's actually this dynamic in the bible where the two are mysteriously working together really it's a good observation why such a different outcome occur? Was there no communication between these various factions? In where, sorry? The, the different outcome subsequently with a different prophet. He was killed. Yes, why? Just the hearts of the individuals, I guess, I don't know. Communication between king states. As a broader understanding of history. There, I, I don't know, but what you do see is if you go through one or two kings, you look at it, you think, why would that king not realise the king before has just done all this stuff, it went really badly, and they do it again? <laughs> There's something about the sinful human heart that until God works in it, 
we're not even clever enough to realize how bad things are going to get when we do the wrong thing. So even if they were talking, it might not have achieved anything, I think. Same today, today. Prophetic books, then. That's kind of uh, Old Testament prophets, Old Testament prophecy. How is it that this thing, which was basically a spoken phenomenon, it's people going around speaking these messages, actually now come to us as written records in the Bible? Well, what we have in each of the prophetic books is really a collection, kind of an anthology is a good way of thinking about it, of the prophetic oracles, which is the word we use for like a standalone thing that would have been brought as a, a verbal thing at kind of one moment. Also, sometimes we find some narrative sections, some kind of context setting stuff. And the fact that these um, books are anthologies, they're collections of lots of sayings brought together, has some quite big implications for how we understand them. It tells us that often they're not actually systematic. So if you're sitting down and reading a letter uh, written by Paul in the New Testament, almost always he, right from the beginning to the end, is following a chain of thought and he's kind of making an argument, he's showing you the way. It's not the same normally in the prophets. They're not working in the same systematic way. Sometimes there might be a load of bits joined together because on the same theme. Sometimes it might be that elements of a book are chronological on the same time. Sometimes, to be frank, it looks like it's a completely random putting together of different things the prophet has said. It also tells us that there's a lot of repetition. Actually, you know, particularly if people weren't listening to these messages, they were bringing the same message again in different words, in a different time, a different place. And so actually, as you go through the prophetic books, you'll see them actually saying the same thing quite a lot. And in some ways, there's lots for us to get out of there, but the prophetic message is quite simple and quite repetitive. Um, there's little narrative material, because most of this was a spoken thing. We get narratives sometimes that give us a kind of context setting. So there's a couple of examples in the first part of Isaiah, where you have both the story of what happens and the record of what Isaiah says into that context. You get some where it's about kind of prophetic um, actions that people do. One of my favourite is in Isaiah, Isaiah 20, where Isaiah walks around naked for three years to show the destruction that's going to come to Egypt. He probably wasn't actually naked for the whole of the three years, but generally, you know, a few times a week or something, he would walk around naked in the city to show the fact that Egypt, I think it's Egypt, was going to be, in a sense, laid bare through the destruction that came to it. So we find some little bits of narrative like that. The other thing this tells us is that actually they might not be written, these books, by the people whose names are at the top of them. The people whose names are at the top of them are the guys who said the words, but actually the actual physical writing could have been by the people. We just don't know. And in a sense, of course, it doesn't really matter. How then did it actually happen? How do we go from guys speaking to crowds across Israel and Judah to actually the books being written down? There must have been at least two stages, it seems. First of all, people recorded and wrote down what was said. Sometimes we see that God tells the prophets to make sure they write down. We see that in Isaiah, you see it especially in Jeremiah, he's told to record the words that God speaks to him. Some people think there may have been kind of uh, groups of disciples around the prophets, so Isaiah may have had a Isaiah school almost, disciples around him. There's a little allusion to that in the book. It's less certain, but it might well be that the close followers of these prophets wrote down their messages and recorded them. And so they probably kind of recorded them on lots of scraps of parchment, and then later they put them together into anthologies. So it may be that the prophet themselves, it may be that someone else inspired by God put together all these bits, sometimes thematically, sometimes chronologically. There's a good insight into that in Isaiah 16. Some prophecies against a place called Moab, where you get a long prophecy against Moab, and then this little bit which says, in the past, God said that, 
but now God says this. Clearly someone, whether Isaiah or an editor, is saying here's two things God has said about Moab. Said them at different times, but I'm putting them together as I compile the book. That's a quick whistle-stop tour of what prophecy is, who the prophets are, what the books are. Any questions on that before we talk about how we actually read these books? Yeah, yeah, oh, sorry, yeah. No, go for it. <laughs> um, I was thinking, when God speaks to the prophets, is it because they are listening and waiting for God to speak to them, or does he just break in? Oh, wow, that's a real question, yeah. It's like the question when you hear, yeah, often... All through the Bible, there's a place in Genesis when God seems to just speak really clear words to you. You think you tell me nothing about how that actually happens. I think largely, well, largely we don't know because generally speaking, there is little narrative context to tell us anything. Um, there are times, so even I think, um, maybe that Jeremiah 18 passage, there's, there are statements like, you know, I was in such and such a place and the word of the Lord came to me. It sounds a bit like I wasn't waiting for him, but suddenly it came. And certainly we know from, um, from the Old Testament and from cultures around the Israelites that sometimes people would go to prophets asking them for a message. So in other cultures, less so Israelite culture, the prophets were the people who would do divination, so they would get messages and do spells and potions and stuff to get messages. And sometimes we see people going, a bit like the um, example we had somewhere of um, 2 Kings 19, where actually Hezekiah thinks, I want to know what God thinks, so he sends to Isaiah. And presumably Isaiah then says, God, what do you want to say? So I think probably both and often doesn't tell us. Okay. Was there another one over here? Oh, just, uh, the period, the 8th yeah, so Isaiah, what comes up later, yeah, it's 8th century. So starting around 740, around to 690, 680 or something. Um, yeah, the last section today will come to that. Let's think about how we read the prophetic books. And I'm going to give some stuff first, generally, on how to read the Bible. Which, if you were here last year, I haven't changed my views hugely. And there's more detail in last year's session one. So if you want to get that download, you can. The first thing about reading the Bible always is you read it with the author. The Bible is an utterly unique book that every time you read it, the author is right there with you. The Holy Spirit inspired every one of these human authors, partner with them to ensure that what God wanted to be written was written. That means we have the amazing opportunity every time we read the Bible to ask the author to help us to understand it. Which doesn't mean, just to clarify, we're asking for some brand new revelation that no one has ever before seen, because actually at this stage that's highly unlikely, and probably if we think we've seen that, we're probably wrong. It means we're saying, Holy Spirit, help me to understand what you've said, what you were communicating through this text. So that is a small point, but really the most important one. We read the Bible with the help of God. And then the general advice on reading comes down to questions and context. All reading actually is about questions and context. You ask the right questions, you consider the right context, and you'll get the right meaning for the text. Whenever you read, even if you're unaware of it, you are asking questions. And because you know different types of text, you know the questions to ask. You pick up a newspaper, as you're reading it, you are asking the question, well, what has happened and what do people think about that? If you're reading um, a science textbook, you're asking, well, how does the world normally work? If you're reading a recipe, you're asking, what do I do as the next step? And often when reading the Bible, I think the question we ask is, what does this mean to me? Or what is God saying to, the, to me through this right now? And that's a really good question to ask, because actually God speaking directly to us in the moment is a wonderful part of the personal relationship we have with him. 
The risk, of course, is one person can read it and say, well, to me, this means this. And the other can read it and say, well, to me, this means that. And they could be completely contradictory. And, of course, someone could say, well, to me, this means I can go off and do this, which could be a really awful thing. It can be used to make legitimate, terrible things. So I think that kind of reading is legitimate. We can do it. But we treat it like we would treat New Testament prophecy, which means we weigh it. We need something solid against which to say, does this fit? with the way that God works, with what God says. Which is why we also need another question. We know from daily life that when we speak or when we write, we're usually trying to communicate one thing through what we're saying. But even while communicating one thing, often there'll be multiple applications to what we say. So if I get home and there's a note saying, please buy milk, what it means is that the person who's written the note wants me to buy more milk. There's one meaning. The applications might vary. I might open the fridge, find that someone else has already bought milk and think, oh, okay, I don't need to do that anymore. It might be that I know I've got no time to buy milk, so actually the application is to text and to apologise that I can't do it. The meaning has not changed. There's one meaning, what the person intended to communicate, but the application varies based on context on what's going on. To read the Bible well, we need to be asking, what did the original author want to communicate to the original audience? When Isaiah was recording, writing down what he said to the guys in Jerusalem, what was it that he was wanting to communicate to them at that time? Which, of course, at the same time, he's asking, what did God want to communicate at that time? Reading the Bible words about looking to find the single message of the text, what it means, that the author and the Holy Spirit have wanted to communicate, and then to find the application or applications for us today. So as we read through Isaiah these weeks, we're asking, what were Isaiah and the Holy Spirit seeking to communicate through these messages, and then how can we, in a different time, apply them today? And unfortunately, the prophets are where this gets slightly more complicated. The prophets are the one place in the Bible where sometimes a single uh, message or a single text will have more than one meaning. But to start off with, it's always best to assume that there's one meaning to the text, to try and find that, and then to find the applications. That's the first half of general good reading of the Bible. It's questions, and then we come to context. Most people know and would say that to read the Bible well, you've got to read it in context. Most people overlook the fact that there are multiple contexts we've got to consider. And the three most important for the prophets, I will put briefly in here. One is the scriptural context. Whenever you open the Bible, you need to remember that from Genesis to Revelation, it's telling one big story. And where you are in the story, completely uh, changes uh, or can completely change the kind of meaning of it what's going on it so the first thing you ask is where in the bible's big story does this come with the prophets it's coming in a period of the bible's big story where god's people are living under the mosaic covenant which we are no longer living under so there's an important difference there they're living before jesus's life and death resurrection and ascension and so we need to recognize that the part of the story they are in is different from us which means the way we apply some of what God says through Isaiah will be different today to what it was then. The scriptural context is really important. Historical context is really important, and probably the prophets are one of the places it is the most important in the Bible. And particularly important is what we call the occasion, which means what was going on in the moment that Isaiah spoke this oracle to these people in these places. Because most often, prophets are speaking directly into very specific historical situations and understanding what they're saying 
uh, and why they're saying it into that context helps us to understand that. Isaiah uh, has quite a lot of indications of what's going on, and we'll see historical context is really good. You get some examples in the prophets, less so. So the book of Joel, there's, it's clear what happens. There's a famine and a plague of locusts and such like. We don't really know when that happened. There are a few possibilities, but usually we can find out and using Bible handbooks, study Bibles, commentaries helps us to find that out. And the last important context is literary context, which literally means what are the words that come around it. When we speak and when we write, we speak in sentences, but sentences find their meaning in paragraphs. There's words and there's sentences, paragraphs, and actually it's these wider contexts which really give words their meaning far more than anything else. That means the worst thing you can ever do, pretty much, you're reading the Bible, is to read one verse on its own and to ignore everything else and to think you've understood it. Actually, unless you're reading a chunk, the risk is you misunderstand because the context around it helps you make sense of it. With the prophets, this is quite easy. Because it's these collections of oracles, these standalone segments of text, we basically work with an oracle. We go, we think about this was kind of what Isaiah said at one time, we interpret it, understand it together. And then recognising our questions and our context, we have to go on this Bible reading journey to kind of handle the text well. And for the prophets, there's a helpful five-stage kind of journey we can go on. We start with this whole thing of what did this mean in the original context? We ask that right question, we know the right context, we ask what does it mean? So for example, it might be that we read a prophecy in Isaiah and we think this means that Judah has sinned against God, they've thereby hurt him, offended him, and judgment is therefore about to follow. That would be an example of a meaning of a prophecy. The second stage is we then think, what was their situation, the original audience's situation, and how does that differ from our situation? So with that example, we go, okay, well, they were under the Mosaic Covenant, the Covenant of Moses, which we are not. They were facing invasion by the Assyrians or the Babylonians, which we are not at the moment. They were living before Jesus' ministry. We're living afterwards. All these differences are important. Then we say, well, what are the theological principles? And this is a really helpful thing for the prophets. What are the theological principles? That kind of means what are the general truths about God, about how God works, about salvation, about how we relate to God, which are in this passage? Because actually there are truths in the prophets which in that sense are timeless. And they're the ones which speak to us in a different age. So we're asking, what are these general things? So from our example, the general truth from that example prophecy would be, well, sin offends and hurts God. And actually that judgment comes in the form of the curses of the covenant when humans sin against God. But then we also have to think about that difference. The next stage is you think there's a difference in our situation. How does the difference in our situation affect the relevance of these theological principles? So actually as Christians, we're not under the Mosaic covenant and therefore we're not at risk of experiencing the covenant curses that Isaiah was warning the, Judah, uh, the people of Judah of. But actually what we do know is that our sin still deeply hurts and offends God and still actually damages our relationship with him. We're kind of taking those theological principles, we're putting up the lens of what Jesus has done and seeing how it still applies to us today. And then the final thing is we think, well, what difference does that make to me on Monday morning as the days go on in real life? Well, it means we as Christians want to seek, up, to, seek to rid our lives of sinful behaviour because though we know we're not going to receive the curses of the covenant, we are offending the God we love and it is going to affect our relationship. And so I know it sounds like a long journey, but actually breaking this thing down 
helps us to avoid the kind of mistakes of missing some of the differences or missing those middle terms which lead us to wrongly understand things, to wrongly apply things. And that is a good kind of journey to go through of any part of Isaiah you might be looking at over the coming weeks. And that's kind of quite general stuff really about reading the Bible. And then we think about the prophets specifically, there are some bits we can talk about which help us with their specific type of text. The first thing is to think in oracles. I've already said these books are collections of oracles, those standalone speeches, basically. And so we want to interpret it in the literary context, which means we kind of say, okay, that is an oracle. We read the whole thing together, understand it all together. Quite often, common sense will help you to work out where the oracles start and stop. Your English Bibles will often have them broken down with subheadings or gaps. That can be really helpful. But remember, none of that's in the original. So that is a scholar's uh, judgment decision on what they think, which is useful. But don't be afraid sometimes to think, actually, there's good reason to read this uh, as a different, uh, different kind of oracle. And there's a few indications which sometimes show us the beginning and end. So if the speaker changes, if God's speaking one minute and then the prophet or the people are speaking the next minute, or if the subject changes, so one minute it's talking about how awful the rulers of the nation are and the next minute it's talking about how rubbish the religious life and the sacrifices of the people are. If it's a change of subject, it might well be a change of um, oracle. Prophetic formulas, now that messenger formula we talked about, thus says the Lord, often marks the start of the prophecy or an end of an oracle. The context might change. In the one minute, it might seem like he's talking to a situation where people are really scared and something awful is about to happen. The next minute, actually, it seems like everything is quite calm and it just feels like it's a completely different world. If the context he's talking into has changed, probably it's a different oracle. And then the form. We'll talk in a few moments about the fact that there are different types of oracle which form these kind of patterns of um, ways of uh, writing. And if it's a different form, it's probably a different oracle. And what we're going to do in this section, we're going to skip through a few of these, and then we're going to have a good chunk of time, and there's various activities for each of these, and you can choose which one you want to do. So that's thinking in oracles. The next one is notice parallelism. Oracles and most prophecy are poetry. And poetry is this kind of heightened form of expression. That's why often in the Bible, when God speaks, he speaks in poetry, because it's a heightened form of language. If you're reading English poetry, often for us, the key thing about poetry is the rhythm and rhyming. Rhyming is the thing we really associate often with a certain type, at least, of poetry. If we were an ancient um, Israelite, if we were reading the Bible in Hebrew, we would not think about rhyming so much. We'd think about parallelism, which means the use of parallel lines, two or three normally, which work together. And you probably noticed that even in your English Bibles, normally the pairs of lines are kind of um, offset so you see them in twos or in threes together. And how parallelism works is that these two or three lines relate to each other in different ways. And kind of noticing how they're relating to each other helps us to understand what they're saying. So you can have two lines working together where actually the first and second line are saying the same thing, but they're using different language. We call that synonymous parallelism. You can have two lines and the first and second are saying completely different things. This one's saying this on the one hand, but the second line says something completely different, total contrast. That is what we call antithetical parallelism. These names aren't important, by the way. The idea is important. Or you can have it where the second line 
adds to what the first line has said. It develops what that said, which is climactic or synthetic parallelism. So an example here, right from the very beginning of Isaiah, you have two sets. Oh, well, sorry, let's start with Isaiah 2, where you have two lines with synthetical parallelism. The second line develops the ne- it on. Sometimes wordplay is more common in Hebrew than uh, rhyming. And in fact, next session, we'll get to a very good wordplay in the end of Isaiah, uh, at the end of Isaiah 1. So rhyming, not so much, but words which sound very similar often are. I'm trying to think, are there any easy examples I can think of straight away? No, I'll come back to you if I do. Um, So here we have, hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. The second line, you see, adds something to what has been said in the first line. And then in Isaiah 3, we have two pairs, both of which are synonymous, so they're saying the same things in both lines, but then the two pairs are antithetical to each other. They contrast with each other. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. Two lines saying basically the same thing. Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Two lines saying the same thing, but saying the opposite thing of what the first two lines are saying. So you see how thinking about how do these lines relate to each other begins to help us to understand what they actually mean. What this also helps us is it means when we read Hebrew poetry, which includes the Psalms, we read it in blocks of two or three lines, not line by line. If you're trying to find a different meaning in every single little line, probably you'll find more than is there because actually the author is writing in pairs. And so actually if you're trying to work out what does this line mean, you think what does this pair mean or what does this triplet mean is the best way to approach it. That's a bit on parallelism. Then language and imagery. As in English poetry, the language used, the imagery used is really important in Hebrew poetry. And we get a lot of similes, which is where we're saying something is like something else, and a lot of metaphors, which is when you say something is something else. And often this imagery is used to give kind of more power to the messages that the prophet brings, to make them really vivid, to make them really arresting. But sometimes they require a little bit of work to understand. We can think they're very obvious, but actually we need to stop and pause and wrestle with them a bit. We need to just ask that question, why did Isaiah use that imagery in that place? What's he trying to communicate through it? The way we do that is we identify the thing that's being described, and then we identify the thing with which it's being associated. So there's the thing we're talking about, and there's the thing we're saying it's like this other thing, or it's, uh, it is this other thing. And then you ask the thing it's being compared with, what did that kind of make people think about? Or what did it make them feel? What would it evoke for them? So for example, if we're talking about something is like a lion, a lion would have made people think of strength and power and danger. And actually in the ancient world, a lion would have made people instantly fearful because there were lions around and they were terrifying and they would eat you and your family. We never come into contact with lions in that way. They don't scare us, but actually it's a different association they would have had. So we need to think not just what is this associated with, but what would they in that time, that place, have thought of about it? And then we ask, well, this thing is associated with all these different things. Which of these elements is the author trying to draw out? So if we say the king is like a lion, we could be trying to say that he's strong and he's got great power. We could be trying to say he's really dangerous and actually he's to be really feared. And it's thinking about the context, what else the guy is saying will help us work out how is that imagery being used in that place? What's it actually doing? 
as I've said, we need to make sure we also think what would the associations have been at that time, in that place, not just for us today. A bit of language and imagery. And then knowing the overall message, I've said already that the prophetic message is really simple. It's very repetitive because actually they're not saying very many things. And what's really helpful is to know the three points of the prophetic message. And then when you read a prophecy in the Old Testament, you can think which part of the message is this feeding into. And once you know which part of the message it's feeding into, it makes it a lot easier to understand. So basically, there's three stages to what the prophets right across the Old Testament books are saying. The first thing they say is, Israel, God's people, you've broken God's covenant. You better repent. That's that whole warning speech thing I'm saying. Israel, you said you would keep these laws that God had given you. You've broken the covenant, the agreement, because you failed to do that. You need to repent. You need to change. That's one of the things the prophets say. The second one is they say, no repentance? You're not going to repent? Well, then judgment's going to come. Often the prophets are saying, either you, are, you have not repented, and therefore the judgment for breaking these laws is going to come. And then the third thing, they say, yet actually, even beyond the judgment that will come, there is hope for a glorious future restoration. That's the three parts of the message. And you'll sometimes get a combination of the three within one oracle. But normally, one oracle will be focusing on one of those three parts. And a really helpful, really easy question to ask when you read part of the prophets is to say, is that about them breaking the covenant needing to repent? Is that about them not repenting and so experiencing judgment? Or is that a promise of what God in his grace and mercy is going to do? And that gets us a long way, actually, to beginning to understand what we're actually reading. And then the last one is to identify the type of oracle and then the purpose that flows from the type of oracle. When the prophets were speaking and writing, there were set forms, there were set ways of saying things. And identifying the form helps us think about the purpose because they would choose the form based on what they wanted to achieve by it. And there are lots and lots of these. You can see some references to books in your PDF that can give you more. But some of the most common, some of the most important in uh, Isaiah we'll just look at tonight. One of the most common by far are judgment oracles, oracles where God is announcing the fact that he's judging the people for their sin, which often have a declaration of what the people have done wrong, talking about their guilt, thinking about why they're guilty, and then we'll have a declaration of the punishment, what God's going to do as a result. And if you find woe oracles, which are the ones that start woe to this nation or ah to this nation, they're a type of judgment oracle. They talk about what people have done wrong, about what God is going to do in response. And the purpose of a judgment oracle was to convict people of their sin. It was to show them, look, what you're doing is breaking God's laws, it's wrong, and then to try and motivate them to change, to live differently, to repent. Sometimes if it happens after the event, actually they're explaining this thing that's happened to you is because you broke God's law. The relevance of that type of form of oracle to us is they teach us about sin about what sin is, about how God views sin, they remind us of the seriousness of sin. That's actually one of the most useful parts of the prophetic books, is that you read them, you realise sin is a hugely, hugely serious offence against God, which is a big legal issue, but also a big personal issue. But then, of course, it reminds us of the wonder of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we are now forgiven all our sins, that there is now no condemnation for those of us in Christ Jesus. 
Another type of oracle is basically the opposite, the salvation oracles. This is when God is saying what he's going to do to save his people from the mess that they've created. Often it refers to a physical salvation, so something happening in this world in the near future. But sometimes it's distant future. It's talking about what God would do in Jesus and beyond in terms of bringing salvation. And it will talk about what God's going to do. Sometimes it will talk about why God does it, but it will always be based on who God is, not on what we've done. Because God's salvation is based on who he is, not on anything that we could do. So salvation oracles are meant to make people trust in God, to trust that however awful the situation might seem, God is going to sort it out. God is going to rescue them from that. It brings them comfort and peace in the midst of the difficulty. And it's meant to, for our relevance, it reminds us sometimes, it's speaking of the salvation we enjoy, and it teaches us that God's the only one who can bring salvation, shows us his loving and merciful character as well. Um, another type is called disputation oracles, which basically is where there's an argument going on in the text in front of us, probably because the prophet is pretending to talk to someone. And that's normally because they're countering a wrong viewpoint. And so they'll kind of say, you know, you're saying that this is true, but actually this is true. There's this kind of imagined debate between the people and the prophet. And what the purpose there, what he's trying to do is he's trying to correct their wrong thinking, their wrong worldview, their wrong viewpoints, and to teach them the truth. And then the relevance of that type of oracles to us is that it reveals truth to us. Some of the things that they're thinking which are wrong may be things that we think. And actually, it's a challenge to us to believe the truth, to hold to the truth. Some of it is just to remind us of the importance, actually, of bringing our thinking into line with what God thinks. Our thinking is as important, if not more important, actually, than what we do, because what we do flows from our thinking. And so when the prophets are saying, no, guys, you're thinking wrongly, it's a reminder to us that we need to have our thinking shaped more by God than by anything else. And we have lawsuit oracles. Lawsuits are imagining that we're in a court scene. And God is there, he's the prosecutor, the one giving the accusations, and he's the judge who will pass judgment, and he's speaking against the defendant, which normally will be his people. And often the clue here is you'll hear, um, you know, right at the beginning of Isaiah 1, you get it, hear, O heavens, listen up, O earth. It's like you're in a courtroom and you're saying, okay, guys, it's time to listen, time to listen because the prosecutor is about to give his case, and then the judge will pass sentence. The purpose of these oracles is really just like the judgment oracles. They're a different way of saying, this is what you've done wrong, and this is what's going to happen to you. And so for us, they do the same thing. They show us what sin is. They remind us of the severity of sin. And then the final one, which is quite prominent in the book of Isaiah, are hymns or praise oracles. Often at the end of a section, particularly in Isaiah, whether it's a small section or a large section, he has this kind of hymn of praise. There's this sense of the truth he's been talking about is so overwhelming, so wonderful. The God he is understanding and communicating from is so worthy of worship that it kind of bubbles out of him. So you get these wonderful expressions of praise. And often, as well as reminding us of the importance of worshipping God, of expressing who God is, they remind us of what God is like. Often they're a response to God's goodness, God's faithfulness, all these different things. And so they remind us of what God is like, and they encourage us, and they inspire us to worship. So when you are reading an oracle, as well as asking, well, what part of the prophetic message, what the prophets say is telling me, think about what type of oracle is this? Is it a judgment oracle? Is it actually a lawsuit? And then think about how does understanding the form, the external trappings really, that the prophet has used, help me to understand what he's trying to say by doing it? 
Lots of stuff taken there. Any questions before we do activity on these bits? Great. For each of those things I've talked about, there is an activity at the end. Now I'm going to leave it again for you to choose what you do. We've got a good chunk of time. We'll do 10 or 15 minutes on this. You might want to do more than one. There's text there and some questions to guide you to apply what we've just said to actual bits of Isaiah to begin to kind of wrestle with it yourself. So call me over if you get stuck, but um, go for that. Yeah, mm. Oh, one question. The mosaic, um, yeah, yeah. And then you can Jesus one. Yeah. Um, are you saying that the whole of humanity is now on the Jesus one, or those who avail themselves of Jesus' death, resurrection Christians, in other words, are, are there consequences the same under the mosaic type of thing? No, so certainly it's not the whole of humanity. So those who put their faith in Jesus are in Christ, yeah. and because Christ has perfectly fulfilled the Mosaic covenant, we receive all the blessings through Him. <clears throat> What's interesting is that the Bible, so Paul the Apostle talks about humanity being under the law of God, basically being under the Mosaic covenant, even though a majority of us as humans aren't descended from the Israelites, haven't inherited that covenant. Um, and there's kind of a debate about, well, did he really think, therefore, that the Mosaic Covenant does cover all of humanity? Or is it that actually there's more general laws written into the way that God's created the world, which Romans 1 would suggest. There's enough in the world in creation which points to the existence of God, which should mean that every human praises and thanks him. The fact that we don't is enough rebellion against what should happen to make us guilty. So, so I'm not sure in a sense. Paul the Apostle talks about it both ways, that there's a kind of eternal covenant humanity are under. Uh, some people talk about the covenant of works in the Garden of Eden, so that what was done in Eden is a covenant all humanity are under, and so rebelling against God is breaking that covenant. Um, but in some sense, God seems to hold humanity under that covenant as well, yeah. Because Does that make sense? Sort of thing, you know, I mean, we know there's going to be an end time judgment kind of thing, but it's sort of the way God works his purposes that in the world situations are very similar to the Old Testament ones, aren't they? So we see God yeah. carrying out his, his um, what you said in the Old Testament. We see it happening now. Well, it's a hugely, yeah, it's one of the big questions of the prophets is God reacted to what nations did and what happened on the national scenes in terms of wars and famines and all sorts, sometimes identified as God action, God's actions. How much is that the case now? And the fact is we can't say. We can't say that because of wars happening there, it's God's judgment. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. But we always had to say that could be possible when you get to Revelation. A lot of Revelation isn't about what happens at the end, it's about what God's doing now. Yeah. And actually the fact is the wrath of God, as Paul says, is being revealed against mankind all the time. So some of the things going on in the world will be an expression of the wrath of God, but we're not given the insight to know what it isn't, basically. It does say somewhere in the Bible that people from all nations and tribes will be saved. Absolutely, that's the definite thing, that actually the Mosaic Covenant was in some ways definitely restricted to a people, the wonderful thing. And one of the messages of Isaiah is Israel are meant to draw people to God. They fail to do it, but then the one God will send, the Messiah, the servant, Jesus, is the one who then draws. You're spot on, yeah, every nation will come. Have a go at those activities, uh, and then we'll uh, move on to talk about Isaiah himself. We're now going to move on to actually introduce Isaiah himself. We've talked about the prophets now we're going to talk about the prophet that we are looking at across these weeks. Isaiah is one of the richest books in the whole of the Old Testament, both in its form, just the lovely language used, and its content, the theology it gives us. 
And alongside the book of Psalms and the book of Deuteronomy, it's the most frequently quoted and alluded to book in the whole of the New Testament. It's one of the key ways that the New Testament authors understand what God has done in Christ. So it's hugely, hugely important. And there are two big things we need to talk about tonight. One of which we need to talk about because chances are you may already be aware of the debate um, that exists around it. It's kind of the biggest thing people talk about Isaiah. The second thing is because it's really helpful for us to know to actually understand the book. So the first thing is the authorship of the book. You might well know that the authorship, as in who wrote the book of Isaiah, is one of the big, the biggest really questions in biblical studies on which there are different views. Basically, let me tell you the history of the question just briefly. The, the vast majority of history of the existence of the book of Isaiah, people assumed that as the book says, it was written by one guy, Isaiah, the son of Amos, sometimes known as Isaiah of Jerusalem. That just as the bit at the start says, and just as several points throughout the book say, that he wrote it all, or he said it all, and it was written down. Come to the 18th century, 1700s, and scholars begin to suggest that actually you can divide Isaiah in two, and there are differences in the two parts. And they begin to say that chapters 1 to 39 and 40 to 66 were actually written by two different people. So there develops the idea of first Isaiah, who's a guy who writes in um, Jerusalem, uh, and then of second Isaiah, who's a guy who writes in Babylon about a, hundred, or about a century and a half later. And in the late 19th century, another hundred years, some other people came along, they said, well, actually, if you look at the last bit of that second section, chapters 56 to 66 also seem to be different. And so they suggested a third author, a third Isaiah, who is um, back, I think, in um, Jerusalem. I think it varies, but often thought to be back in Jerusalem after the exile. So another well, 200 years, I guess, after Isaiah, son of Amos, is writing first Isaiah. More recently, scholars tend to agree that there's a lot of unity. You read through the 66 chapters, there's all sorts of things which actually kind of tie them quite closely. So people used to say there was Isaiah 1 to 39, and there was this collection of prophecies from someone else, and there was space on the end of a scroll, and so someone stuck it after Isaiah 39, and then people mistakenly thought that it was all from the same author. But then they thought, we're really clever, and millenniums later we've realised that that's happened, and everyone's been wrong. What scholars now say actually is there must have been some sort of unity to it. There's so much similarity, so many key themes and stuff, and so scholars tend now to say not there were these three random people and it's been brought together separately, but that there was an Isaiah school, his disciples who kind of read the early prophecies, reinterpreted them, absorbed some of his theology, and then brought these later messages. So see, still at least three authors, often many more, but still those three sections over different bits of time. And there's several kind of bits of evidence, arguments used to support this idea of three authors the key one is the historical situation. And this is where Isaiah is actually quite different from any other book uh, in uh, Old Testament prophecy. Chapters 1 to 39 are primarily addressing Judah, the people of God, in the 8th century when Assyria was the main threat. So this is, actually I've got a point drink. Hey, this bit around here, this is Palestine. In the north, you've got Israel, the northern tribes, talk about in a minute. Judah in the south, Jerusalem is the capital right there. And then, um, so in the 8th century, the Assyrians, these guys up here, are becoming rather too big for their boots, are expanding, you can see where the lines are, to create an empire 
and they are at this period threatening Israel and Judah. They want to come and invade them, make them part of their empire. And chapters 1 to 39 certainly address that time period when that is going on. As a side note, there are some appendices to your notes and the Old Testament story bit tells you about, um, gives you a chart to show you when Isaiah's prophesying and uh, about these world powers as they come in. But then chapters 40 to 55 address God's people in exile in Babylon. This is over, a, what, over 150 years later, a century and a half later. So God's people have been rebellious against him. So he allows the Babylonians to come to destroy the city. Many of them are carted off. So the Babylonians come from down here in the south. They come up through round and they come, they destroy all of that and they carry a load of people, uh, of God's people, back to Babylon. That's what we call the Babylonian exile. Chapters 40 to 55 are Isaiah talking into this context, uh, bringing God's comfort. What's really striking is not that Isaiah is talking about the future, which is not unusual in the prophecies. What's really striking is Isaiah talks into the future. Chapters 40 to 55 don't talk about this as something that's going to happen in the future. They talk as if, guys, this is happening now and here is God's message to it. That's why people suggest that the first part was written in the 8th century, but the second part was written in um, the 6th century and was written in Babylon, where the people were, not in um, Israel and Judah. And then chapters 56 to 66, people realise, seems to be an even later context. So after the Babylonians come the Persians, who come from this area here called Midia, and they come along, they have a huge empire, and uh, they then invade, but they allow the Israelites to go back to their land. And the last chapter speak into that. So people say, well, there's three different contexts. He's not talking about the future. He's talking into it as if it's now. They say there must therefore be three authors. Some other reasons, people say the literary style, the language is different. The early chapters, lots of um, kind of imagery and stuff. The later chapters, 40 onwards, is this very grand, big kind of perspective stuff. Or theological emphases, you get things like 1 to 39, the Messiah figure is a king, a Davidic king. Chapters 40 to 66, you don't find the Davidic king, you find talk of the servant figure. Um, some people say that, you know, the first part's all about judgment, but then the second part is about hope. So people say, well, the theology's different, it must be different authors. And then predictive prophecy comes in. As the people basically who don't believe that people through what God is saying can predict what happens in the future say clearly if Isaiah is talking about what happens under the Babylonians, under the Persians, it must have been written then, it couldn't have been written 150, 200 years earlier. Particularly important here is in Isaiah 44, there's a word saying that Cyrus, who was the Persian leader from that place, Media, who came later, was going to come and was going to bring the people back to the land. Now, if Isaiah, son of Amos, said that, he was saying that about 150 years before it happened. And some people say, well, that can't be possible. Therefore, it must have been written when it had happened, not actually in advance. They're the arguments people say there are three different authors. But actually, a very good case can still be made for one author, that guy Isaiah, who lived in Jerusalem in the 8th century, writing the book. The whole historical situation thing is true. It's definitely true that there are three historical situations going on and that Isaiah speaks into the situation, not about it being a kind of future thing. But of course, it doesn't necessarily mean that there had to be three different authors. 
There's no reason, if we believe in predictive prophecy, that Isaiah in the 8th century couldn't speak a word of encouragement to the people that were going to be living in the 7th and 6th centuries. And what's really interesting is you read chapters 1 to 39, there's lots of really specific historical stuff. The names of lots of kings, lots of specific events that happen. Get to chapter 40 onwards, it's all a lot more vague. There's a strong message from God, but you don't get the same constant reference to real-life kings and real-life events, which actually does suggest that the person wasn't there, or they put more details in. Even little things like the trees mentioned in 40 to 66 are not the trees over here in Babylonia, they're the trees over here in Israel and Judah. If the author was over there, how come they know about the trees here? And how come the author speaking about over there is talking about trees here? Probably because he's here, he's living in Jerusalem. So historical situation isn't actually as solid an argument as scholars have sometimes suggested. Literary style is never a good argument, okay? It's just silly to say that one person can't write or speak in different styles. We could pick many different authors who, whether deliberately or not, you look at different writings and they can sound very different. Particularly as the case, if he's talking about a different situation, it makes good sense that he might choose to use a different type of language when talking about a later time than he does about the current time. And it's been suggested, a quite unique thing about Isaiah, is probably the stuff in the early chapters in his day was spoken to the people at the time, then written down. It's quite possible that chapters 40 to 66 were never spoken. They're actually gone straight from God to Isaiah to be written down for the future, as it were. So actually they do read quite differently, but that could well be because one is speech and one is written, which would kind of fit with the differences quite well. Theological emphases, it's true, there's some variations, not contradictions, but different themes come out at different times. But there's also things which go all through the book. There's this title for God, the Holy One of Israel, that goes right through the book, found very rarely actually in the rest of the Old Testament, I think six times, yet it's found spread all throughout these chapters. Different things as well, different parts of the theology are consistent throughout the book, suggesting that one person wrote this. Just very quickly, others, predictive prophecy, if we believe that God can predict the future and to know the future, speak the future to us, there's no problem there. There's very good reasons to think that the structure of Isaiah works. So there are good reasons why Isaiah in the 8th century would talk about what happens in the 6th century. And next week and the week after, we'll talk about that. The simple fact that that's what the book says is quite important. One really important one, there's a prophecy in Isaiah 13 against Babylon. Remember, the later empire to come. And that Isaiah specifically said to have come from Isaiah, son of Amos. So a prophecy specifically about the people in the 6th century is said to come from the guy in the 8th century. The book really wants us to know it's written in the 8th century by one guy, not by these three. And then manuscript evidence. If it was true that these were three separate things joined at some point, it would be quite likely that somewhere we would find a written record of that. We'd find a piece of parchment which has some of it, but not the rest of it. The fact is we don't find that. And the very earliest copies we have of Isaiah, which are hard to date, but are probably only a maximum of 700, probably five to 600 years after Isaiah actually wrote. What's significant is that Isaiah 39 ends and chapter 40 starts right at the end of a column. Now, if the guy copying the manuscript out thought it was a different thing, a different author, he would have started on a new column. He clearly thought there was no break between them. So the earliest manuscript evidence we have suggests this is the work of one author, all to be read together. So I'm convinced, I think, that the evidence sways more on the side of this is written by one guy 
Isaiah, son of Amos, Isaiah of Jerusalem in the 8th century. But even evangelicals disagree on this. Some evangelical scholars think there are multiple authors, some hold to one. It's not, in a sense, a hugely big issue to divide on. But what is important is that we read the book as a whole. It's been given to us as one whole. It's been read that way by Jews and then Christians for thousands of years. And that's how we should, and that's how we are going to read it. Any quick questions on that before I zip through historical context? So a lot to take in. You might want to reread that over. It's also not as important, so you might want to ignore it completely, and that is fine. Let me quickly give you the broadest overview of the historical context. We've said already that contexts are vital for understanding the Bible. That historical context is one of the most important things for the prophets. Isaiah, just to make our lives more hard work, as we've just seen, speaks into three different historical contexts, which is quite a lot to be honest to get your head around. So what I wanted to do was to give you a broad brushstroke overview tonight. And then when we look at the three sections of Isaiah over the coming weeks, we'll look in more detail at the relevant one then too. So don't worry if you can't take much of this in, but this might give you the very big picture so that as we go through the different sections, it will help hopefully. The first bit we need to talk about is the Assyrian period, 740 to 700 BC. As I said, up here is Assyria. That's where these guys come from and when they come into the story. By the time we get to the prophets in the Old Testament, God's people have split into a northern kingdom called Israel, you can see on the map, and a southern kingdom called Judah. And what basically happened in the ancient Near East, which is what this is, you can see there's lots of different places. There were lots of small nations. And as decades and centuries passed, various of these nations would increase in their strength and would try to create an empire. And so it kind of becomes this game of ping pong of all these little countries being passed between the bigger countries like Egypt and Assyria and Babylon, each as they kind of make their, um, make their empires. And Israel and Judah, as you can just see there, are tiny in comparison to this. They're about the size of Wales, I think it is, uh, together. So it's a really small place compared to these big countries around them. And amazingly, really amazingly, they experience quite a lot of peace and prosperity between leaving Egypt, which is around 1200 or 1400 BC, depending on how you date it, right through to the 8th century we're talking um, about now. But it's at this period that things begin to get a bit more difficult. What was also really important, of course, for these people was that they knew that God, Yahweh, had promised this land to them. It was part of his promises, part of his plan to restore everything that had gone wrong, everything that had been broken. So it's this kind of game of ping pong almost with the countries that Isaiah is speaking into. And he's explaining how God is using that to do his work, both of judgment and of blessing. So this first section is the time when Isaiah was alive. The book starts by telling us that he prophesied from the death of Uzziah in King Uzziah in 740 through the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah. It's also likely that he lived into the reign of Manasseh who came next. And there's a book that's not in the Bible but we have from the ancient world which says that Isaiah was sworn in due uh, under King Manasseh who wasn't a very nice king. He didn't like what Isaiah said um, kind of in the uh, early... Uh, 600s uh, BC, which may or may be true, but he seems to have lived into there. 
Now, the reign of Uzziah was a really good time. Egypt and Assyria, all the big guys, were having lots of problems at home. They didn't have the energy or the forces to bother with people like Judah and Israel. So both of them had a really good time. Things were as good in Israel and Judah as they had been since the time of Solomon, um, a good couple of hundred years before. So it was a really good time. All that did mean was that actually the rich were getting richer, were caring less about the poor. There was all sorts of inequalities, all sorts of um, social um, harm and different things going on, lots of abuse. And so very early prophets like Amos and Hosea, who speak earlier than Isaiah and speak primarily to Israel in the north, where it seems to be worse, often are speaking about social justice because life was quite easy. And so actually often the rich were basically abusing the poor and disadvantaged in that context. Everything changes when Assyria gets a new king, a guy with a fantastic name, Tiglath-Pileser III, or sometimes called Pul in Two Kings, who in 745 becomes the Assyrian king, deals with things at home, and starts going out to rebuild the Assyrian army. And basically they start traveling across and threatening Israel and Judah. And it's this whole great threat of the Assyrians coming and evading and destroying the Israelites and the Judahites, which sits behind the whole of first Isaiah. The big question being asked in chapters one to 39 is how will Israel, or how will Judah um, relate to Assyria, this great power? Are they gonna be pro-Assyrian or are they gonna be anti-Assyrian? And actually the most important question is, in the face of this huge threat, who are Judah gonna trust? Are they gonna trust Assyria? Are they gonna trust Egypt? Or actually, are they gonna trust their God to keep to his promises and to look after them? And we'll see that Isaiah 1 to 39 is all about faith. Will you have faith in the promises of God that he has said he's gonna deliver you from this situation? That's that first historical context. And then we have the big break before the next one. We go right down about a century to um, 605 BC to the Babylonian period. During the time of Isaiah, 722, the Assyrians invade and destroy Israel at the top there. They cart a load of people off to Assyria. They cart a load of people in to repopulate the area. Around 705 BC, still in the time of Isaiah, the Assyrians come down to Judah and they destroy pretty much all of the cities and towns around Jerusalem. But as we'll see in the story in Isaiah kind of 37 to 39 next week, in the last moment, Hezekiah cries out to God and God preserves the city of Jerusalem. And actually for a whole hundred years, it stands as kind of the last point of God's people in God's place. While Assyria are the kind of big, big guys on the block. By the end of the seventh century, the Babylonians down here rise in power. They kind of get rid of the Assyrian threat and they then come and they are the ones who evade Jerusalem a whole hundred years later. They invade it first, take the king into exile, put in a puppet king, a guy they could control. But then 10 years later, 586, they come, they utterly destroy the city, utterly destroy the temple, the place where God lived with his people. They cut off all the highest levels of society, to Babylon and they leave just the poor there. It seems like all the promises of God made to Abraham, which were beginning to be fulfilled, have been forgotten, have been broken. And what happens at the end of chapter 39 of Isaiah is that there's a prophecy from Isaiah saying that in the future, the Babylonians are gonna come in and are gonna destroy this and take you into exile. This comes after 38 chapters of God's promises of, if you trust in me, I'll deliver you, and God's promise of a new king who will reign forever, and God's promise of the nations coming to worship Yahweh. 
And so you read that prophecy and you think, all these promises, but now you're telling me that the Babylonians are going to come and going to kind of ruin it all. That's why Isaiah, even in the 8th century, has to speak about the Babylonians in the 6th century. He said it's coming. He can't have people thinking God is therefore lying, God is not trustworthy. He has to tell them there'll be an end to the exile. The exile lasts less than 100 years, about um, 50, 60 years, depending on how you date it. And it's right at the end of that time, when the people are about to be allowed to return to their land, that Isaiah brings these words of comfort and encouragement that God is going to deal with the problem. Chapters 40 to 55 are asking this question, is Yahweh really able to do everything that he's promised? And if he is, how is he going to do it when everything's been destroyed by the Babylonians and when his people are unable to live his way? They're sinful people unable to follow him. That's the big question we face in those chapters. And then we reach the last period. After the Babylonians come the Persians from up in the top uh, right there from Media. They come, they take over the empire, they come, they take over Judah and Jerusalem, but they do things differently. The Babylonians and Assyrians would come in, destroy everything, cart people off, try and kind of force people into submission. The um, Persians kind of said, well, actually, if people like us, they're less likely to rebel against us. We're not going to force them into this. We're going to woo them into it, in a sense. And so Cyrus, the Persian, comes along. He says, guys, you can go back to your land. He actually gives them money and says, go back, rebuild your temple, rebuild the city walls. This is the story of Ezra, the story of Nehemiah. And so the people get to go back, back to the land that God's promised them. They get to build a temple. It looks like things are kind of being restored, but still actually they find it's not really what God has promised. It's nowhere near as good as it was before, let alone these vast promises of a new king who reigns forever, of all the nations coming to worship at the mountain of Yahweh. Things still aren't quite how they should be. And so these last chapters are really wrestling with that difficulty. They have gone back, but these promises still haven't been fulfilled. The question being asked is, God may have kept his promise to bring his people back to their land, but what about the promises of a new king? What about this international kingdom? What about all people worshipping Yahweh? It's into that situation that that last section addresses. So you see how even though he's in one place right back here in the 8th century, what he says flows into the 6th century, the Babylonians, then the Persians, in the 6th and 5th century, it makes sense for him to address them all. And in each one, there are different issues going on, different questions he's addressing. And that's what we're going to be exploring in the next three sessions, as we take one per each of those sections. We'll talk more about this background, and then we'll look at some key landmarks, key monuments, thinking, how were these questions being asked? And then thinking, actually, what are those theological principles, which even for us today, when we're not facing invasion from Assyrians and Babylonians and Persians, how are they still relevant to us then? So you might want to read some bits of Isaiah 1 to 39 this week to get a bit of a flavour for it. And we'll be um, same place, I think in the main hall though, not in here, same time next week. I look forward to seeing you there.